with virtually limitless design options, Pella's like your personal barista for windows and doors. Customize your order by August 31st and you can bundle and save big at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Get started today at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. And once again, as I've been reminding everybody for the last month or so, all sorts of ways you can participate in the program or take it in. We've got, of course, your terrestrial radio signal. You can listen to us on the stream. Easiest way to do that is just go to listen live at uh, 620wtmj.com. If you choose, and a number of you do, we now have cameras that are set up in the studio, and you can see how my wife has dressed me on a daily basis, and you simply have to hit the watch live button, and you can do that, or you can just go to YouTube, and we've got our own YouTube TV station where we stream this all live as well. Who would have known? Then, of course, I saw the podcast numbers today. Lots and lots of you listening on the podcast, and I appreciate it. However you end up finding us, we are very glad to have you with us. Summerfest starts next week, a week from Thursday, the 22nd, and um, my show is going to be originating from the Summerfest grounds. Keep in mind, Summerfest this year Thursday, Friday, Saturday, over three consecutive weeks, and my show will be originating live from the lakefront on Thursday and Friday of each of those three weeks. So if you happen to be down at Summerfest, stop by, say hello, love to see you, and to get you in the Summerfest spirit... Um, every day this week, we're going to be giving away a set of four Summerfest tickets to a particular caller. Today, we're going to give away those four tickets in the 1 o'clock hour of the program. So sometime between 1 and 2, we will be giving away um, four tickets to Summerfest. We're going to be doing that promotion all week. Also, in the 1 o'clock hour of the program, we're going to be talking about the, the latest developments in the Trump indictment, including... What I I think is the operative question, the thing that still makes no sense to me about all of this, and that's all coming up again, but we're going to save that for the one o'clock hour of the program. Let's get to it. This, it's interesting how good fortune can occasionally pose problems. Don't know how many of you saw this story, but um, happened, it's just become public in the last couple days, but apparently last fall, there's a guy and his cousin, and they're charged with cleaning out the house uh, that their late father-in-law, the guy's late father-in-law lived in this house. He passes away. So the guy, his name is John Reyes, 41 years old. He and his cousin say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We, we've got to go, we got to go clean out the house because we're going to get it ready or sell or whatever. So they're down in the basement. And in the crawl space of the basement, they find boxes and boxes and bags and bags of something. You know what they are? Pennies. They find over over a million pennies in boxes and in bags that apparently the father-in-law had been collecting Over the years. Now, I'll do the math for you. A million pennies is worth $10,000, but it's in boxes and boxes and boxes and bags and bags and bags. So it's not easy to move a million pennies. So the first problem that they have 
to extend it's a problem is, well, we, we've got to get it out from the basement crawl space. But it's bags and bags and bags, and these things are heavy. So you've got that issue, number one. Number two, it's not like the old days where you could just walk into a bank and give them the change, and they run it through the change counter, and they put the deposit in. Because many banks, not all, but many banks don't take change anymore. They just don't do that. So there are these, like, coin counter machines that you can find outside of Walmarts and things like that. But the thing with those is they take, they, they take a percentage. So you know, now you could argue that if you've got 10,000 pennies, I mean, it's found money. So what if you have to pay, you know, 5% of that or whatever to turn it into cash? So you've got that going on. But the problem becomes even more interesting because as they're loading up all the, these pennies and they're trying to figure out what to do with them, the guy talks to someone at the bank and someone at the bank says, well, here's where you need to be careful because you've got a million pennies. Some of those pennies could be valuable. I mean, some of those pennies, you could, you know, who knows how long this has been collecting. You could have, you know, you could have some 1944 penny in there that's extremely rare. You could have a penny that's worth thousands of dollars. The problem, though, of course, is that you don't know if your penny is valuable unless you look at it. And and do you have any idea how long it would take to look at a million pennies? Matter of fact, that these these this, the folks that find it apparently they thought, okay, well, we'll we'll start looking. And after about two hours of going through pennies, recognizing number one that they really don't know what they're looking for as to how to differentiate a valuable penny versus one that's just worth a penny, it also occurs to them that a million pennies is a heck of a lot of pennies. And so they they bail on it. They say they they can't do it. So what's happening now is apparently the folks that found the pennies, they've gone public with this story. So they got bags and bags and boxes and boxes, and they're trying to sell the pennies on like eBay um, to the highest bidder, saying, OK, we don't know what's here. It could be, you know, there's a million pennies or so. So that that's ten thousand dollars. But there, there could be pennies that are worth thousands and thousands of dollars, an individual penny. Um, so if you want to buy it from us and take a chance, you could, you know, you could find the mother load. You could find this really valuable one. So give us twenty or $25,000 for our $10,000 worth of pennies. And by the way, you're also going to have to figure out how you're going to get the million pennies to you. And I, I, if you've seen the pictures of this, you cannot begin to understand how large, how, how much space a million pennies takes up. So they're, they're working their way through th- this problem. And I guess at the end of the day, I mean, you got $10,000 worth of pennies. And yes, it's going to be a pain in the butt. But if, if nothing else, if you can't sell them, just haul them to Walmart and kind of keep pouring them into those coin machines. And even if you have to pay 5%, it's found money. But th- that's what they're working on, the, the whole concept of change. So it, I, I want to use that as a launching point for how you handle something. Um, I understand that fewer and fewer people pay for stuff with cash. I mean, we've talked about this before. Nowadays, you know, everybody uses credit cards, so you don't have to fool with the concept of, of change. I still use cash for some things, but even even me, even this dinosaur, I, I'm starting to use credit cards more and more and more for a variety of reasons. But there will be times when I use cash, and I will come home. And I will have, I don't know, if I bought something for, 
the other day I went through somewhere and I bought something. And it was like $6.52. And so I, I had a $10 bill. I paid for it with a $10 bill. So I had $3.08 in change. So I'm still old school enough that when I, I come home, empty out my pockets, if I've got change in them, there, there's a jar I have. Put the, char, the change in a change jar, and then once that jar fills up, I take that change jar and I pour it into a, a larger sort of container. And once the container gets full, I end up taking it to the bank or, or wherever, although you can't take it to banks anymore, at least the ones I use. They don't take this, but we, we find a place. Actually, I have a friend who has a bank that still takes this, so I give it to him and he'll take it and they, they cash it in. I have had at some point in time – I. I the, the, the change jug that I use, the times I've taken it in, typically there is four to $500 worth of change that, that's in there. And it ends up being some nice, fun money. I cash it in, you know, maybe once every couple years. That change jar is filling up a lot more slowly now than it did five or 10 years ago because I just don't have as much change. But that, that's where I do. I still put it in the change jar with the idea that I'm going to accumulate this and I'm going to ultimately take it to somewhere that I can find that will cash it in. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I want to kind of ease into this Monday. What do you do with your spare change? Do you do like I do, which is just accumulate it? Do you chuck it? What? How do you handle change nowadays? And I'm willing to bet that most of us aren't getting anywhere near as much of it as we used to. But still, you come home and for whatever reason, you've got that 45 cents in your pocket. What do you end up doing with it? There's fewer options to use change. Used to be you could put it in parking meters and things like that. Most of the parking meters don't take change anymore. How do you handle spare change? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. My change jar fills up a lot more slowly now, but there's no doubt I still accumulate it. And when it gets to the top, I take it in and I cash it in. And normally it's just found money. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. I, I love this. All these people are doing the math on this story. If you're just tuning in, what, what got me started on this is last fall, a guy cleaning out his father-in-law's basement finds a million pennies, a million pennies. That's like 300 tons of, of pennies. And they're, they're trying to figure out what to do with these, these things because lots of banks won't, won't take them and won't cash them in. You can take them to places, but that'll, that'll charge like a fee for, you know, processing them. But even at that, you, you need truck after truck to get these things around. And on top of that, there might be valuable pennies that are in there. So it's entirely possible. And some of people are saying, hey, if you've got copper pennies in there, it, it, it's worth more than a penny to take them to scrap dealers and things. But the bottom line is you, you've got to figure out how to deal with these. But it raises the larger issue of how we deal with change nowadays. Like I say, I always used to, when I'd go home at night, empty out my pockets, all the change would go into a small change jar, then it would go into a larger change jar. When it got full, I would take it to a place that would give me money, like a a bank, although the banks I use nowadays don't do that anymore, and I'd walk away with several hundred bucks. I don't get as much change anymore, but how do we handle change? 855-616-1620. Dale, calling us from the road. Dale, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What I do with my change is I work part-time, 
And where I work, we have a soda machine, and I will. you probably get a soda maybe once a day. And what I do is I put in a $5 bill, and I get uh, $3 back in change, which is usually quarters. Right. And at the end of the year, I take I save up all that money, and I take that big jar to the bank and turn it in for cash, and that cash... In the summertime, I use in my jet ski up north okay. so for how, gasoline. So how much money would you say you're going to accumulate in that change jar over the course of a year? I probably have between 250 and maybe $325, and I use that in gas money for my jet ski up north. Yeah, so no, thanks. You know, I mean, it, it, it's found... It's found money. Um, my producer Charlie was saying, "Well, you know, where I live, you, you need you. If you want to use the uh, washers and dryers, you still need change to be able to do that. So that that takes quarters and things like that. It's tougher. It's tougher to even find places to spend change on." Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Well, kind of like you, I accumulated. So rarely that basically whenever I have a dollar's worth, I, I go to a store or gas station and say, hey, can I have a dollar for this? <laughs> okay, yeah, right. And, and so you cash it in a little. You, you're, you're kind of doing it um, as you go as instead go. of, yeah, saving it yeah. up. Yeah, it's yeah. I guess I just don't – I mean, thanks for calling. I don't have that much – I guess I just don't have that much patience. I kind of want it out of my pocket. And, and it is funny because in my car – I will. I'll, there's a little compartment, and I'll keep a little bit of change. But the truth of the matter is, I, I don't use that as much. It's I, again, I, I never. I, I don't want to say never, but I hardly go anywhere. Sometimes I'd use it for parking meter money and stuff. But most of the parking meters around here, you, they don't take change. You need to have a credit card with it. Um, occasionally, and I don't go through drive-throughs very often anymore. But occasionally, um, if it's I don't know if I'm at a, on those rare occasions I'm at a drive-through and it's five dollars and fifty-six cents and I've got time and I can find the fifty-six cents in change I'll, I'll give them a five and, and that so I get the bills but it's a completely different environment I have no idea what I would do if if I found a million pennies you know dump truck after dump truck full of that you wonder almost how do you accumulate that much stuff how long could you be accumulating that. And nowadays, I don't think you'd ever be able to accumulate that much because we just don't get that much change anymore. John in Richfield. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Yeah, I have the same problem. My bank doesn't count change anymore either. Right. So what I do, I just spend it. Like if I'm going to the grocery store and I, I owe them $4.38, I just sit there and I dig in my pocket and I count out the 38 cents, a dime and, <laughs> and a quarter and three pennies. And the people behind me get mad at me, but oh well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, John, you know, as you were telling that story, my thought was, God, I hope I'm not behind John at the, at the grocery store. <laughs> I, I, I'm just being honest with you. I, I get it, you know. I, it, but it's and I understand it all spends the same and stuff. But it's just kind of like, oh, really? Um, but yeah, it, it's it, it, it's harder and harder to cash this stuff in nowadays because not all banks. I'm getting some texts from some people who say that their banks still do it or the credit union still does it. But most of the places that the big banks I use, not a single one of them takes change anymore. No, mine doesn't either. And like some of the places that do it, they they charge you for it. So right. You got ten dollars with the change. You get I don't know nine dollars back or something. I'm an old unemployed bum, so I can't afford <laughs> to do that either. So okay, okay. So you find a million pennies in your basement um, or your father-in-law's basement. What do you do with it? 
Not while I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to sit there and count on them laying pennies. No, me neither. No, th- thanks for your call. And I'm not, I mean, it was funny because, like, the, the story, somebody tells them, well, there might be a really valuable penny there. Hey, you might have a penny that's worth $25,000 or whatever. But, of course, you've got a million pennies. <laughs> can, you, can you just imagine sitting at the table, like, looking at these? And No, I, I think that's that definitely is in the category of life is too short. Judy and Hartland. Judy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. A lot of the stores in the Heartland area uh, ask you when you're checking out, do you want to round up for the current charity? Right. And I do that, so I don't get a lot of change anymore. So if if you get if if you're paying if you're paying cash and you get eighty five cents back, you you're, you're it's eleven dollars and fifteen cents, and it's a twelve. It's you give them twelve dollars. You just say keep the yep. change, literally. Yeah. So you don't yep. even have to deal with that. Um, yeah, I think that's. I mean, especially if it's a good cause. Yeah, because who? What, what right. do you, What do you do with? I'm. I mean, I, I used to really love these change jars and stuff, but like I say now, now it's almost more of a nuisance than anything else. Because I doubt. I, I don't. I doubt I'm going to live long enough to fill up the next one because I don't get change. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, I'm lucky. My credit union, they still take change, but right. I don't get that much anymore. Yeah. No. Th- thanks for. And you understand it because more and more people. I mean. Fewer and fewer people pay with cash to begin with, so that's um, happening. Jeff, a copper penny is worth two point five cents, right? But the, that the yes, but that's and see that's why the, these folks that found the million pennies, that's why they're trying to they're they're saying okay, we don't know what we have. We've got a million pennies, and some are going to be copper pennies, and some are going to be zinc pennies. Um, but we don't want to go through the trouble of sorting these out. But if you give us $20,000, which is $10,000 more than the, the pennies themselves are worth, you know, maybe you'll be able to make more money. But of course, the problem is somebody has to take the time to figure out, do you have a copper penny? Do you have a valuable penny? Um, whatever. Jeff, I ended up taking them to the Educators Credit Union in Oak Creek. Um, they have a coin machine, but you have to have an account with them. It counts them and then automatically deposits them into your account. Well, yeah, like I say, the um, my m- the last time I did this, I gave them to my friend. Thank you, and he, you know, he took them, and I, I don't know where he took them, but whether it's his, I think it was a credit union somewhere. But then, then you know, then he ended up giving me the cash, which was great. I'm lucky, Jeff, that I use a small bank in my small town in Belgium. They have a coin counter, and they deposit the coins right into my checking account. I normally fill up a coffee can and then bring it in. It it's it's an interesting issue to have. Um, there's no question about it. Um, Jeff, I'm like you, but I separate the quarters from the rest of my change. Man, I don't even, I just, I don't want to go, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to go that, that, that far. Jeff, my wife and I go to Lake Havasu City, Arizona for the winter. Our church has plastic baby bottles that they give out for people to donate their change. They always, we always have enough for at least two bottles. The money is given to local families in need. Yeah, that's a, that is a very, very good thing. Um, right. I don't know. It's an interesting situation. And I guess who would have thought that it would be a problem finding a million pennies? But it is a problem for these people. I guess it's it's there are solutions. You just got to figure it out. Well, I don't know. I think you know, five years from now, we're going to be having this conversation and more and more people are going to use um, credit cards and there's going to be very, very few people using cash. And you'll look back and say, what was this change thing? Remember when they, they used to give you pennies and nickels and dimes? Wouldn't be surprised if those go away in the next five or 10 years. 
one of our texters says, Jeff, can't believe this. I am rolling change right now um, as I'm listening to this conversation, getting ready to put it into those rolls and and then take it to like a credit union in Whitewater. They were saying, well, see, here was the thing back when I, I have I, there's two banks that I use primarily. Um, long story. Um, but back when those banks took change, they, they didn't want them in rolls because what they had to do is they have to open them up. What they did is they, they, they want you to bring in the, the jar and then they take them in the back and you could just hear them with the, the clatter. They'd pour them into the coin counter and make that noise, you know, with all kind of like the old slot machines that used to pay off in quarters or whatever. And you just hear the, the money coming in there. So they'd say, don't, don't wrap them because you might say there's 50 pennies in the roll, but there might actually be 48 or whatever. We're going to have to count them anyway. So, those days, I think, are long gone. All right, this is the worst segue in the history of radio, but we're going to talk about a different Penny in this segment of the program. Daniel Penny. Know who Daniel Penny is? Daniel Penny, for those who might have forgotten it, just as an aside, I, I, it, this is one of the interesting things about our live stream, and again, you, you can watch us do this. I, I get all these people texting who are now commenting on the clothing. You know, it's just, it, it is. It's just, it's just, it, I feel like I'm, you know, what on, on like the, the celebrity red carpets where, you know, you'd have Joan Rivers who would be out there, you know, as you're going into the show and they'd be commenting on what you're wearing and things like that. So if it, if it inspires you to watch the program to see, okay, how has Fran dressed him today? That's okay. That, that all works for me. But number of texts, oh, nice, nice blue pullover there with the white shirt underneath. So I appreciate all that. Um, any of it. Back to more serious things, because this is serious. Daniel Penny is the um, Marine who, on May 1st, was riding in the New York subway, and you had the mentally ill guy named Jordan uh, Neely, who had, had come into the, the subway and was screaming at, at everybody, and Daniel Penny put him in a chokehold, and two other people helped restrain him, and ultimately uh, Neely passed away. And after much political pressure brought on the district attorney, they, they issued manslaughter charges against Neely. Um, so far, a grand jury and before you can be brought to trial, a grand jury has to indict you. This was just the DA's office making the charging decision. So far, a grand jury has not issued charges. But Daniel Penny, for the first time, is speaking publicly. And if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner um, 620. I, I've got a link to the, the videos. They're, they're, the defense team um, released several videos of Daniel uh, Penny discussing you know, what happened that day. And, you know, it's very, very interesting to watch him. In the videos, you know, he's he's dressed in a, a suit, and he completely denies doing anything wrong. I mean, here here's what he says. I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of summarize, but if you want to watch the video, he said he had no intention of trying to kill Neely, and um, he said, you know, this was a scary situation. He said, this is what happened. He said, the guy stumbles on, you know, he appears to be on drugs. The door. Now you're in a subway car. The doors closed. He ripped off his jacket and he threw it down at the people who were sitting next to me on my left. So, okay, the subway. You're now trapped in the subway car. You have this big guy that comes in and starts screaming. He rips off his jacket and he throws it on the ground. Penny continues. He says, "I'm listening to music at the time. I've got headphones on." I took my headphones out to hear what he was yelling. He's yelling over and over again, I'm going to kill you. 
I'm prepared to go to jail for life, and I'm willing to die. All right, so uh, imagine you're in this subway car. You have this big guy, and he's a big guy, comes on, throws his jacket down, and starts screaming at people, I'm going to kill you, I'm prepared to go for, to jail for life, and I'm willing to die. Penny, that's the former Marine, who's 6'2", said that, yeah, he, he was intimidated by Neely, who is bigger than he is. And he's watching Neely yell at terrified passengers in their faces. You know, and, and Penny says, look, I couldn't sit still and potentially watch him carry out his threats. He's in the subway car. He's screaming, I'm going to kill you, and um, I'm prepared to go to jail for life. He says, look, there's a common misconception that Marines don't get scared. We're actually taught one of our core values is courage. And courage is not the absence of fear, but how you handle fear. He says, I was scared for myself, but I looked around. There were women and children. He was screaming these threats in their face. I just couldn't sit still. All right. Then video of the encounter, which has gone viral, shows Penny holding Neely in a chokehold on the floor of the subway car until he stops moving. He says, look, some people say I was holding on to Mr. Neely for 15 minutes. He said, that's not true. Between stops on the subway is only a couple of minutes. The whole interaction lasted less than five minutes. He said, so this stuff about chokehold for 15 minutes and stuff, it's just not true. He says, some people say I was trying to choke him to death. That's also not true. I was trying to restrain him. He said, you can see in the video, there's a clear rise and fall of his chest indicate that he's breathing. I'm trying to restrain him from being able to carry out the threats. Penny said the grip he used to hold Neely down was based on the force that he was exerting. Uh, Let's see. He says, Look, this altercation, and he's Penny is white, Neely is black. Said had nothing to do with race. He says, "Look, here's here's the here's the the deal." He said that the notion this incident was fueled by race is ridiculous. He says, "I didn't see a black man threatening passengers. I saw a man threatening passengers. By the way, a lot of whom were people of color." Um, In the video, there's at least there's two strangers that are there helping restrain Neely. He says, actually, one of the people, one of the two guys that was helping me restrain him was a person of color. A few days after the incident, I read in papers that a woman of color came out and called me a hero. He says, I don't believe that I'm a hero, but she was one of the people I was trying to protect, all of whom were scared. Uh, he says, I was trying to keep him on the ground until the police came. I was praying that the police would come and take this situation over. I don't want to be put in that situation, but I couldn't just sit still and let him carry out these various threats. So that's that's what the guy's story is. He, he's now telling the story. If you watch the videos, it's... He does not seem like some crazed white supremacist. He seems like a 24-year-old guy who says, look, I felt I had to act because here you have this guy. I don't know his background. All I know is he's really, really big. He's on this subway car. He's screaming at people that he's going to kill them. He's prepared to go to jail for doing this. And he said, yeah, and I, I thought I, I had to do something before he did, in fact, act. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Assuming that Daniel Penny testifies in this fashion, I see no way in the world 
that a jury of 12 people agree beyond a reasonable doubt that he is guilty of manslaughter. Matter of fact, I, I think I think this is one where, again, assuming that the facts are what he said, and this is new details emerging, assuming that this Neely is on the subway car screaming, I'm going to kill you, I'm prepared to go to jail for the rest of my life, um, and yelling things you know, like that, I don't see any way at all that this is that this comes close to generating a conviction. And assuming also that this encounter isn't like he choked him for 15 minutes, if it really is an encounter that less, lasted less than five minutes between subway stops, I, it just it seems to me this prosecution is a classic example example of a political prosecution brought more to satisfy certain elements of the community than it is to see that justice is done. 855-616-1620. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. I'm just telling you, watching the new videos that have been released by the, the former Marine, Daniel Penny, who's talking about what happened on that subway car in New York, I do not see any way 12 jurors agree beyond a reasonable doubt that he is guilty of manslaughter. If you're just tuning in, I mean, it, it's a different, at least his version, which I suspect is going to be backed up by several witnesses, is a different version than what the DA's office is presenting. He says, look, I, I'm, I'm minding my own business on the subway car. This really big guy, Neely was a really big guy, comes in, starts screaming at people that he's going to kill them that he is prepared to go to jail for life, that he has nothing to live for, etc., and is yelling at it and is terrifying people in the subway car. He says, also, I didn't choke the guy out for 15 minutes. It, the whole encounter lasted less than five minutes. And he said, by the way, for people who think there was a racial element, there was a person of color who's one of the people that helped me restrain him. He said, I, 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 didn't, I just saw a guy who, in my opinion, posed a threat to people that were on the car. I just, you know, that this matter has not been in New York City. What happens is the DA's office can bring charges. But before the case goes to trial formally, the grand jury has to see it and present an indictment. So far, that has not happened. Jeff, my son and I took the CTA subway to Chicago this past winter. A man came into our car screaming random obscenities and vague threats, nothing about actually killing us, but threatening nonetheless. It was still very scary. We got off that train and waited for the next one, but I've been very grateful if somebody could have subdued him. Um, yes, Jeff, part of the problem is the family and the attorneys that are representing the family go on TV and say he wouldn't hurt a fly. He's got mental illness issues, but he wouldn't hurt anybody. And they show videos of him dancing like Michael Jackson, which makes him look like he's an entertainer. Um, yeah, well, right. But of course, that ignores what the guy's past history was, which is where he was known to be dangerously mentally ill. To me, this is a classic example of a failure of a system. It's... It's less what Daniel Penny did on the subway car. It's why it's why Jordan Neely was was in a position to walk onto that subway car, knowing what everybody knew about him and threaten people in this fashion. He was well known to New York, to the New York authorities as being dangerously mentally ill. This was this was something that was foreseeable and preventable if the city had involved been involved. And now ex-Marine Daniel Perry is Penny is being set up, I think, as the fall guy for this. And I just don't think a jury's gonna buy it. Mike on the Northwest Side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Hey, uh, this is a case where a concealed carry permit would be the opportune time to use it. 
and this guy is obviously looking for possibly uh, suicide by police. Well, I, I, you know, I mean, Mike, I think the problem is he was he's dangerously mentally ill. He, he's got a lengthy record of of contacts with law. He was what was he on probation or parole for you know assaulting another woman, punched her in the eye socket. He he was well known. So I I, I don't think he was trying to kill himself necessarily. But the, the, look, the people on the subway car, they don't know what the, all they know is they're trapped in the subway car. You've got this really big guy who's screaming that he apparently that he wants to kill people and things like that. And you have somebody who then intervenes before it gets to that stage. And you're trying to hold the the I don't know. I mean, under normal circumstances, you could say, hey, this is kind of this is the good Samaritan. This is the guy who's trying to prevent this this from happening, and now we're going to turn around and we're going to judge him. This shouldn't have happened in the first place if authorities had done what they should have done, which is to get Jordan Neely off the streets. Um, and again, I agree with one of our texters who says part of this is you, you've got the attorneys and the family who are saying, oh, this was this kind of harmless guy. If you look, he, he been, might have been harmless if he was on his meds, but when he's off his meds, I mean, they have all sorts of, he has a history of acting out in a violent fashion. He has a history of an, acting out in an antisocial fashion. And the people on the subway car, particularly the sex marine, they don't know that. All they know is they're trapped underground in this little thing, and you've got this really big guy who's screaming, if it is in fact true, I'm going to kill you. I don't care what they do to me. I'm prepared to, you know, go to jail. Jeff, I can't believe a person trying to help others from being killed or hurt would be held responsible. This only makes others not want to step in and help out in a bad situation. Well, yeah, that's 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 it. I mean, I guess... What you could do is you could say, well, in a perfect world, he was just screaming at people and threatening to kill him. Maybe you have to wait till, I don't know, he punches some woman in, in the face like he had done before. And maybe at that point you can intervene. But but how does that help when he's broken the woman's eye socket or whatever? Look, I don't think if they I don't think they're going to be able to find any evidence to prove that there was an intent to kill. There was an intent to restrain. And again, I thought this or at least a lot of the initial accounts, I thought this was something that went on for a lengthy period of time. The story is now emerging that this was between subway stops and the entire encounter takes less than five minutes. And that's not you're in the chokehold, you're being restrained for five minutes. That's, you know, five minutes from, okay, boom, you've gotten onto the subway, you've taken off your jacket, you've thrown it down, you're screaming at people that you're going to kill them. I'm just saying you, you look at this. It is a tragedy. It is extremely unfortunate. But to try to make ex-Marine Daniel Penny the fall guy for this, when the real problem is the fact that the quote-unquote victim here, Jordan Neely, should have never been on the street in the first place in a position to walk into that subway car and be threatening to kill people. That's where I think the real outrage should come. Um, Jeff, I think he did what any decent, um, able person would do. Um, yeah, I, I think that's it. Uh, Kelly and Greenfield says, Jeff, this is a tough situation. People didn't know the guy's background, only that they saw an immediate threat. So somebody quickly stepped in. Yeah, that's that, that's that's it. If, if you're I, I, I guess, look, I, I don't I'm not endorsing vigilantism. This this isn't a Bernard Getz type of thing. This is 
a 24-year-old guy who's sitting on the subway minding his own business, and a crazed man comes on and starts screaming that he's going to kill people, and the guy steps up and restrains him. And for people who want to play the race card about it, it is very interesting that the other two people, two of the other people in the subway who are helping him restrain him, at least one of those two is a person of color himself. It's just, but again, because it fits into the national media narrative, it fits into, you know, the inevitable lawsuit that's going to come here. We, we've got to play the race card here. Well, it's, and I, I mean, I like Daniel Penny where he says, look, I, I, I didn't see, I, I just saw a man who's screaming that he's going to kill people. I mean, the, the race was secondary. I didn't even think about race. I was just trying to stop the guy before he acted out. Ah, explain to me how a jury of 12 is ever going to return a verdict of guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. My guess is most people in New York City would be glad to have somebody like Daniel Penny on that subway car under similar circumstances. A lot of stuff coming up in the next hour of the program. We're giving away four Summerfest tickets and... All right, some of the unanswered questions in the Trump indictment. Don't go anywhere. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Well, I told you so, but this isn't one that I'm happy to be right on. Secondly, it's not one that I'm surprised to be right on. You will remember the horrible story from a week ago Saturday, Saturday evening, June 3rd, where you had the one-year-old, she would have been two years old last weekend, girl that was was killed. Um, They have now apprehended the person who allegedly did this. Apparently, what happened is the little girl was in a car um, right behind, so mom's in the front seat, Dad is driving. Um, Woman's three-year-old was in a car seat behind her. They leave their home. The complaint says a white Impala began following and then chasing them. We sped up. They sped up. We went around cars. They went around cars, said the mother. The mother said she could see the person who was driving was a guy named Devon Chapman. Um, Said this was Chapman was her best friend's husband and that she had been talking to him. Now, I, I don't I don't know what precipitated this. That's still one of the one of the open questions is, you know, what happened that caused this Devon Chapman to chase this family? But but he did. The complaint says that the girl's father described being chased by the Impala even through red lights. He was watching the rearview mirror as they crossed West Capitol Drive, saw muzzle flashes and heard gunfire. We were trying to get away. And that's when he this would be Devon Chapman let off the shots. The father then drove to a nearby fire station. The little girl had been shot in the arm and the head. As it turns out, he would not survive. Authorities chased down Chapman. They arrested him on Interstate 94 in Kenosha County the next day. It all unfolded during a high-risk traffic stop. A detective spoke with Chapman's mother. She said she spoke with the defendant on the phone, and he was crying and, and told her, I killed a kid. I got kids. I wasn't trying to do that. Later that night, he apparently texted his mother a news article about the one-year-old child and said, Ma, I messed up. Okay, so it seems like they've got a, a pretty strong case. Again, we don't—the the, the open question, I guess, to the extent it makes any difference, is is what, what happened? What was it that precipitated this? You know, why was Devon Chapman chasing these other people in the car with the kids in the car and shooting at them? But— it, at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. You've got a, a little girl who, who's dead. Now, 
where does that I told you so came come in? Well, when we when the news of this first break broke, matter of fact, when we talked about this a week ago Monday, I, I think the point I made was that I was willing to bet all the money in my wallet versus all the money in my producer Charlie's wallet, and he does not carry cash, I do, um, that when it when the details came out, when they caught the person that was responsible for the shooting, it was going to turn out to be, wait for it, that he was a felon, not legally allowed to possess firearms. And if you were to look up Devon J. Chapman on the Wisconsin Circuit Court access, what you will find is that um, at the age of, um, right before he turned 18, but he was treated as an adult, on um, in early August of 1995, he was he committed and was subsequently convicted of armed robbery, use of force, party to a crime. So yes, yes, in the least surprising development of the day, the guy that shoots the little girl is a convicted felon. Wait for it, not legally allowed to possess guns, much less shoot them off while he is chasing a, a car in a fashion that, I mean, this is, it's like an action-adventure movie um, from, like, the, the 80s or, or the 90s. You can almost see this. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is driving the car trying to get away, and you've got the bad guys behind him just blasting out. that That's what was essentially going on on the mean streets of Milwaukee a week ago Saturday. You might say, okay, well, what happened to Devon Chapman, when he was convicted of armed robbery, use of force, party to a crime. Well, he was sentenced to 69 months confinement. But wait, wait, that's not what happened, because this is this is the game the judges play. They always say, uh, you've been now been found guilty or having pled guilty or whatever. This is your sentence. 69 months confinement. OK, and then there's this pause and there's a gasp. And then they say, but but. I am going to suspend the sentence, and you will serve 15 months in confinement, and I will put you on extended supervision for the balance of the term, 54 months. So for his offense, he received 15 months of confinement, 54 months of extended supervision. But the bottom line is he was a felon, not legally allowed to possess firearms. And and once again, that was not a deterrent. Why do I bring this up? It is because when we look at the crime problem in Milwaukee and in other urban areas as well, but in Milwaukee in particular, when you have these horrible situations, the the shootings and things like that, more often than not, it's not going to be the first time the bad guy has been to the rodeo. I mean, is anybody – seriously, is anybody surprised that the guy that murdered this little girl is is a convicted felon? Is anybody surprised? You knew that this was going to happen. You don't just wake up one morning and say, hey, today's the day I'm going to go out and get a gun, and I'm going to use it to get into a gun battle and chase a car through the the streets of Milwaukee shooting at it. You don't don't just wake up and do that. You you have – Almost always you have a history of this. And I bring it up because, you know, whenever these stories come out, you have all the talking heads that get together and say, well, you know, this is the city is awash with illegal guns. And, And there is a point to that. But that's not the underlying problem. The underlying problem is people who are not legally allowed to possess guns in the first place have them and are willing to use them which is why I am on my knees, figuratively speaking, if you're watching us on the live stream, begging, begging, 
the Republicans who control the state legislature to recognize that the way our felon in possession of a firearm laws work in this state are less than a joke. They're less than a joke. They're the first things that DA's offices give away. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have to wait until somebody shoots a one or two year old girl, a felon shoots a one or two year old girl before we get serious with this. So, I, I mean, here's what you need to do. Now, starting tomorrow, somebody, somebody somewhere should introduce legislation which says, Felon in possession of a firearm, mandatory minimum prison term. I don't know, two years, three years, five years, whatever you want to be, irrespective of the crime that is being committed with the gun. You catch a felon who has a gun, boom, you send that felon to prison. You get them off the streets because there's no legal reason for the felon to have the gun, and there's no good reason for the felon to have the gun mandatory minimum terms of imprisonment. And then at least the word goes out to the community, among the bad guy community, hey, we're we're really serious about this. You're carrying a piece. You're not allowed to do it. You're not going to pass go. You're not going to collect 200 bucks. You are going to prison. It's an easy case to prosecute. Trust me, former prosecutor's perspective here. Felon in possession of gun cases are really easy. These are low-hanging fruit. Is the guy a felon? Did he have a gun? Did she have a gun? You know, it's, it's that simple. And if they did, boom. Don't give the judges the discretion to say, well, I'm going to come up with some excuse and we're going to put you on double secret probation. Nuts to that. If you want to start dealing with the crime problem, all right, let's start with the low-hanging fruit, which is the bad guys the people who are now not legally allowed to possess guns, who do it on a routine basis because they're not afraid of any sort of consequences. Let's start busting them. Let's take the discretion away from the judges. And let's say once you're convicted, you go to prison. Now, I understand the weakness in that argument is, you know, you could always be chismed. You know, you could have the John Chisholm effect where the DA's office decides we're not going to bring charges because we don't think it's right that this convicted felon should go to prison for two or three years. That's a different story. But give the courts, give the courts, give the DAs, give them the ability to do this. This is easy. This is popular. Why the Republicans in the legislature who control the legislature don't do this is beyond me. And then put that bill on Tony Evers' desk. And if Governor Tony Evers wants to be the one who says, no, I don't support mandatory minimum sentencing for convicted felons, Fine, leave it on Evers, and then every time you have a convicted felon who commits a crime like this, we could say, well, maybe that guy would have been off the street, but for Tony Evers. Put the pressure on him. This is one where it's good politics, but it's also good crime control. How many more people need to be shot? How many more crimes need to be committed before we recognize that felons with possession of guns are big deals? Like I say, it's the low-hanging fruit of prosecution. Get them off the streets. And why we don't have the political will to do that is absolutely beyond me. I am so very glad to have you with us on a Monday afternoon. A little bit of, uh, you want to talk about, like, I was going to say springtime. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I know technically summer doesn't kick in for another what, uh, another 10 days or so. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, once you hit Memorial Day, it's summer. But you would not have known that from what happened to the temperatures over the last day or so. Saturday, just, I mean, 80 degrees out on a golf course, it's hot. And then all of a sudden, boom, um, it's not anymore. But it is, it is summer here in Wisconsin. And what that means 
is that starting a week from Thursday, the 22nd, that is the first day of Summerfest. Now, once again, this year, it's a different Summerfest schedule this year and last year than it was like in previous years. Um, instead of a, a consecutive like 11 days with Monday off, here Summerfest is nine days. It's three. It's Thursday, Friday, and Saturday over three consecutive weekends. And I think if I look at the schedule, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I'm going to be broadcasting live from the lakefront Thursday and Friday each of those three weeks. And I, I love the opportunity to get down to Summerfest. I'm also scheduled to go see a couple Summerfest shows as well. Um, but I, I want to make it easy for you to join us. It feels like summer, which means, like I say, the big show is almost upon us this week. We are giving away a set of four Summerfest tickets every day to get you ready for the occasion. I have a set of four Summerfest tickets to give to one caller. Let's make it caller number 10, 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. Caller number 10 wins a four-pack of tickets to this year's Summerfest. It is the 55th anniversary of Summerfest, and there's a lot of great performers. And if you win... If you win a four-pack, what I would ask is, if you happen to be down there on one of the Thursdays and Fridays we're broadcasting during the day, noon to three, stop by and say, hey, I'm one of the people that won those tickets on your program. Or if you share them with friends or family members or whatever, hey, just have them stop by and say hi. We love to hear that. Just um, while Charlie's lining up and deciding the winner, I I mean, a couple, a couple texters who, I mean, raised this interesting point um, Jeff, you know, you, you talk about the mandatory minimum sentences for convicted felons. Why don't lawmakers pass what you propose? Seems like it'd be pretty easy to get the support to needed to get that sort of thing passed. Um, yeah, and a number of people are asking that that point. Who benefits from no mandatory minimum sentences? Well, as somebody who thinks that this is just, like I say, some political decisions, some laws are tough, others are easy. This, to me, is the ultimate no-brainer. So why why would a legislator say, I'm not going to support mandatory sentences? Hmm. Well, maybe because, I don't know, you're afraid that this means that a bunch of your constituents might get locked up because they're felons running around carrying guns? I, I don't know. Maybe because you're afraid that if you pass this, it means that too many of this type of person or that type of person is going to be sentenced to prison. Maybe if it's because we, we all know Tony Evers doesn't like to put people in prison, even if the people deserve to be in prison, and his goal is to reduce the prison population by half. Well, you're not going to be able to do that if you start saying, hey, felons with guns, boom, you're going to prison. But but beyond Beyond that, beyond this liberal dream of let's not hold people accountable, I don't understand anybody in their right mind that would object to something like this. It's real simple. If you if you have committed a felony, if you have been convicted, you are not allowed to have a gun. And most of the felons that you find who are running around the streets carrying guns, they're carrying them because they have bad intent and they're acting out. Will this stop crime? No. Will it make it easier to get criminally inclined, dangerous people off the street? You're darn right it will. Let me pull the um, pull the curtain back on stuff that goes on behind the scenes from time to time. In our old studios, Radio City, uh, the heating system was erratic, um, which means like during the winter, there was very little heat. And 
And it was one of those things. I mean, I can remember, honest to goodness, doing the radio show wearing mittens and things. And you have to, like, take them off to kind of push the buttons. And as far as, like, our our, our area where the content people sat, you know, give it up. It, it just, you know, it was just, it would be freezing. And so finally, finally, they, quote, unquote, fixed the heat. But um, so it wasn't freezing anymore, but you couldn't turn the heat off. <laughs> and so you'd come in and it was just like it was it was just, oh, it's 85 degrees in here. Now, personally, as somebody who prefers warm weather to cold weather, that that's the way I would go. So th- this is not Radio City, but our new studios. I walk in this morning, right, taking over from uh, Steve and Carol. And Steve is like, do you have do you feel what it's like in here? I said, I've just walked in. He said, it's like a sauna. So apparently... I think because it had been warm, they had shut off the heat. And then what happened is because it was cold over the weekend, they had turned the heat back on. And now we can't figure out how to turn the heat off. So Wyatt Barmore Pooley, it's it's 75. It was 73 when I came in. It's now 75. Yeah, I can feel the difference. It's usually, like, pleasantly cool in the studio. Yeah. It's honestly very nice. But uh, it's... It's warm and a little stuffy in well, here. Well, you know, well, here, well, here, here's the deal. I mean, so I always dress accordingly because it's normally and it's normally a little bit chillier. So I've got this. I've, if you, you know, people, this is another incentive maybe or maybe a disincentive for people to watch us on live stream because I'm getting ready to start taking off clothes. I mean, I think that's I'm getting ready to, you know, it's stuff is coming off pretty soon, you know. Yeah, I mean it, it's lucky you're wearing the polo under the uh, under right. It's, the, it's, the lucky, it's lucky I've sweater. got right. It's, it's lucky I've got the polo right under that because otherwise, you know, we'll we'll get some of that music, da 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 da. You know, and it's surf bum Jeff Wagner. Th- that's it. You know, kind of kind of going down there. No, we'll we'll see. But it is it is sort of it is kind of warm in here. It is toasty in here. But we will carry on. Yep, 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 yep. One of our texters says, um, all due respect, Jeff, nobody needs to see you pull off your very best Moulin Rouge act, to which my response was, the congregation says, amen. Nope, doesn't get any, we're only going down to the polo shirts here, and it is is sort of funny, because that's one of the things about our new studios and the new facilities. If anything, they're cold. They're they're over-air conditioned and things like that, so I always dress accordingly, and now... Now we're down to the polo shirt. I don't think there's too much else to other <laughs> else to take off there. But yeah, if you, if you tune in on the live stream and you say, "Hey, that guy was wearing this like blue pullover." Yep, I was wearing the pull, blue pullover. Okay. Um, regardless of how you feel about the decision to indict Donald Trump, the former president, on on violations of the National Espionage Act, which is what they they call the retention of, of records. It, there doesn't appear to be any doubt about, you know, what happened. The facts are not at issue. And, and whether the government's going to be able to prove criminal intent or not is something that time will tell. But, but it's very, very clear that Trump took all sorts, boxes and boxes and boxes of classified documents. And he took them out of Washington, D.C., and he took them out of the White House, and he took them down to Mar-a-Lago, you know, his, his golf club, you know, living quarters. It's also very, very clear that when he was asked to return them, instead of simply returning them, he didn't. It, it, you can't even – I don't think you can even argue ab- about that. And, you know, and there's evidence now he's saying things like, I don't want people, even my lawyers, I don't want them going through my boxes of stuff. And despite the fact that he had many opportunities to return these documents, he, he didn't. 
And that's what distinguishes this case from the Biden case, from the, the Mike Pence case. It's not it's not that, OK, some documents, including some classified documents, you know, end up, you know, in, in file folders or in boxes that you end up taking. It's that when you find out you've got them in the case of Biden, boom, they, they OK, come here, come take look, take everything back. Sorry. Um, in the case of Mike Pence. OK, we, we found these through a search. You know, some of these documents got mixed in with our personal papers here. Take them back. That, that's that's different than what Trump did. Trump kept them. And if you read through the indictment, it appears that he went to great lengths instead of simply saying, OK, take all this stuff back. He went to great lengths to try to retain a lot of the stuff, including classified information that he was not supposed to have. The the biggest question about all this, and I, I've been saying this since the story first broke, is how self-inflicted a, a wound this is. And as I said on Friday after this indictment came out, oh, look, I don't care how you spin it. Trust me, if you take nothing away from the three hours on the program today, take my word as a recovering lawyer and a former federal prosecutor, you never want to see your name at the top of a federal indictment, United States of America versus fill-in-the-blank, the grand jury charges, count one, count two. You never it, – it's never a good thing. It, it's just flat-out not. And what has struck me all along is this whole thing was so unnecessary. It, it could have all been avoided. And look, I don't think this is good for the country at all, regardless of – where you are on the should Trump be charged and, and whatever, it is not good for the country to have a former president who has been indicted. It's just we're divided enough and, and this does not help. But the truth of the matter is, if Trump had simply behaved the way I would argue a normal person would have behaved under these situations and simply when you found out you had documents that you weren't entitled to, said, okay, here, I'm giving them all back. Come take them. Um, if he would have simply done that instead of, oh, we're going to move some around and you can have some and you can't have some. And, and yes, these might be classified, but I declassified them in my mind and stuff like this. It's like if you would have just given the damn things back when they were asked for None of this would have happened, and I can pretty much guarantee you that because that's what distinguishes this, like I say, from the Joe Biden case or the Tom Pence case or the Barack Obama case or any of these things. It's that you end up with these records. You understand how that happens, I guess, but you know, you give them back when you find out that you're not entitled to them. So to me, the operative question, and this is what I want to discuss with you, not do you think it's a legitimate prosecution or not? We'll have time to talk about that. But my question is, why do you think he did it? I mean, and, and I'm very serious. Why do you think he did it? Because, you know, you, you find out you're under investigation. There were all sorts of opportunities over the course of the last year and a half where Trump could have ended this effectively by simply saying, oh, I found out I've got 15 boxes of these things here, you know, send send the people from the National Archives over and pick them up. Or, you know, there were all these different opportunities, step one, step two, step three, where the opportunity to return the stuff, which would have put this, I think, would have largely made this entire thing go away. Because if you look at the indictment, 
The indictment, it's not for having the records in the first place. The indictment is for not returning the records and then lying about it and things like that. But it's not returning the records once you found out you had them. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. What do you believe the motive was? Why did he, in your opinion, why did he do this? Now, you don't need to prove a motive to get a conviction. You just have to prove that he had them and that he knew that he wasn't supposed to have them. Okay, that, that's the burden they meet. But what, what do you think was going on? Why would you allow it to get this far? 855-616-1620. That, to me, is the most interesting question about all of this. Regardless of how you feel about the charges, they could have been short-circuited if Trump would have just given these back and had he had many opportunities to do it. And at pretty much every step of the way, he didn't. 855-616-1620. Why do you think this was? I'll share my thoughts and hear yours in just a moment. 855-616-1620. And again, I, I want to talk about why. And, and some people are texting and saying, well, they should prosecute Biden as well. I, well, Without going too deeply into the weeds here, I mean, here's the reality. If you read the Trump indictment, he's not being prosecuted for taking documents in the first place. He's being prosecuted for refusing to return documents once he was made aware that he was not entitled to keep them. It's the obstruction sort of charges. Now, Look, whether it's right or wrong, what it seems like happens a lot is we don't have we don't have a really good handle on classified documents. And that's why, you know, you get documents from seven or eight years ago that end up in a box in Joe Biden's garage. But when when Biden finds them, they, they get returned. When Mike Pence finds them, they get returned. In the case of Trump, when they find out he's got them, instead of simply saying, OK, come over, you know, bring over the forklifts, haul this stuff away, you get the. Okay, let's hide these here. Why don't you go through them, look through them, pull out stuff and maybe make it disappear. You you get that reaction that this none of this happens if Trump simply gives the stuff back. And whether you think Joe Biden should be prosecuted or not, I, and you know, that that's a whole different story. But Trump is being prosecuted for not giving the stuff back. This whole thing was so avoidable if he had just done that. So. Why do you think he did? Um, let's start with Rome in Midtown. Rome, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes, uh, thanks for taking my call again. Sure. I appreciate it. I think it's really simple because when you look in terms of the whole, the whole matter, uh, his, from the day he came into office, their whole uh, administration was, was uh, trying to get money. Uh, they were taking money here, there, and everywhere, starting with the money that was spent for the uh, inauguration that people still haven't talked about, the millions and millions of dollars that disappeared. I think he took those things so that he could either sell them to people like Saudi Arabia and uh, get more money because I think that he's mainly interested in money and power. So if he uh, can either use it to sell those things to uh, the highest bidder or whatever company he wants to sell those to, he will use those to sell them. Well, okay, thanks for the call. I don't don't think that's the case because— it's not so much the documents, it would be the information that's in the documents that he know he has possession of. So if you wanted to say the guy's a traitor and he wants to give secrets away, he, he could do that in the course of a conversation. He doesn't need the physical documents. Now, I, I just, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that Donald Trump was keeping this stuff 
because you know he wanted to be a, a trader and he wanted to sell this for money. I just I, I don't and, and look I, I think you can say a lot of bad things about Donald Trump, but I, I don't think I don't think that's what was going on. Uh, Ron and Racine, Ron, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What do you think was going yeah, on? Yeah, I think. All right. What I believe is going on is that he's very immature. He's like a little kid that he's very defiant. When you tell him he can't do something, he's going to do it. That's part of I, I look at it as him being narcissistic and just like, you know, he, he like I said, he's very defiant like a kid. Another thing that shows me that he's defiant or uh, immature is he, re, he refers to himself in the third person. Like yeah. Trump did, they didn't want Trump to do this. <laughs> yeah, I, I always, I always roll my eyes when I hear anybody that does it. So your theory is basically, he's just—it's just kind of an ego thing. Nobody is going to tell yeah. me what to do. I don't care about right. the Bureau of—I don't care about the National Archives. I don't care about the FBI. Screw them all. I'm Donald Trump, and I'm gonna—I'm just gonna do what I want to do. That's your theory. Right. And he's been that way this whole president when he was president the whole time. He was like that, too. He's not going to change either. Um, Ron, thanks. You know, actually, I don't know that I could have put it better. I, I think I, I don't look and I understand that there's people out there who, again, like our first caller, Roman, I appreciate it, who think that, oh, he was doing this for trees and stuff. I, I don't buy that. I just think it, it's this this arrogance that. I think was a cornerstone of the Trump presidency and was a cornerstone of, of his life that I can do whatever I want to do and I'm not going to be held accountable for this. Um, let's see. Jeff, and a lot of our texters are making that point. Jeff, Trump has a huge ego. It drives every decision he makes. He would never admit to ever being wrong no matter what. Um, Jeff, I simply feel Trump feels that since he was president, he has a right to all his documentary paperwork and that he owns it. Hmm. Jeff, learned behavior, sexual inappropriateness, lawsuits, bankruptcies, nothing serious has ever happened to him. Well, I, I'm one that does talk about consequences, and if you do this stuff, I, and I'm sure there's an element in, inside Donald Trump, I'm sure there is this factor thinking, you know, I've done all this other stuff over the years, and, and I've been able to, to get out of it. I mean, there now I'm under federal indictment because I kept some of these records in, you know, boxes. Jeff, ask anyone who's done business with him. He tries to skirt the rules, the laws, any agreements. Gentleman agreements, there have been so many businesses that have been screwed out of what they agreed to, agreed to because this guy makes it look like he's good for it, but then messes them over. In the end, it's just his modus operandi. Here's another text, Jeff. It's very simple. He thinks like a child. It makes him feel important and maybe shows it to his very personal friends. Well, that could be it, but how silly is that? He is the former president of the United States. You wouldn't, you would hope that in order to be viewed by your friends as a matter of, uh, as an important person, a BMOC, you wouldn't, big man on campus, that would be, you wouldn't I always have to say that because with the Urban Dictionary and stuff, I'm always afraid that I use these old-fashioned acronyms and somebody might say, Jeff, don't you know what BMOC really is? Big man on campus is what I'm referring to. But I guess I, I just – what it was, would it say that, okay, you're the former president of the United States and you're you're having dinner with – or you're at the, the bar where some members of your club are there. 
in order to satisfy your ego, you've got to pull out some, like, you know, classified document and show it? I mean, everybody knows that you're a big deal. You're the former president of the United States. Um, Jeff, he's an obstinate arse, and he thinks he's above all this. Yes, everyone else gave the records back, but he doesn't have to because he's Donald Trump. It's ridiculous. Well, it... It's just it is a complete and total, you know, self-inflicted wound. Jeff, I think he kept the documents because he felt he was entitled. His ego wouldn't uh, allow him to return them. And that's kind of the, you know, general, general uh, touch. Now, I do have one texture, just one, who says, Jeff, you're such an unbelievable Trump hater. You are blind as a bat. I don't know what I'm saying makes me a Trump hater, although I, I am a never-again Trumper. There's no question about that. But but he had documents that he wasn't entitled to have. That, see, that's the point. Forget about, forget about whether you think Biden should have been charged as well. Forget about all that. Just try to apply some common sense here. He had documents he wasn't entitled to. That is not at issue. He was put on notice that he had documents that he wasn't entitled to. What would a normal, rational person do when you get the letter from the, I don't know, National Archives or, you know, whoever, the, the FBI or whatever, that says, Here, here's the deal. You've got these different records. They don't belong to you. They need to be returned to the National Archives. And if you keep them, you know, you're in violate, you might be in violation of these various statutes. Who, what is the normal logical reaction that somebody would have? It would be, Charlie, get together a couple people, get a couple of my lawyers, get all this stuff together, take these boxes, get them out of the bathroom. Did you see the picture? These boxes are just bankers boxes piled up in a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. Get them out of the bathroom. Somebody might want to use that bathroom anyways and not have to trip over a box. Get them out of the bathroom so I can use the toilet in there and, you know, put them on a forklift and call up the National Archives or call up the FBI or call whoever and make arrangements to pick them up. That, that's what a normal person does. And the issue just flat out goes away. It's just, okay, fine, he, he returned them. And then later on, if three or four years from now you're going through some folder and you find something that's marked top secret, well, then you, you call up whoever and you say, hey, we've just uncovered this. But you return all the stuff. You don't have meetings with your lawyer saying, well, I don't like people going through my files, even you, and maybe why don't you take a box back to your hotel room and kind of look through things. And if you see anything bad, just kind of pluck it out and like make it disappear. Huh? Who does that type of stuff? I mean, that's like, all right, let's, I mean, when you're, when you're a prosecutor dealing with that, that's like having a defendant, it's like waving a wet, waving a red flag in front of a bull. This is, it's just, to me, it is just a classic example of whether it's ego or narcissism or a form of mental illness or I'm above all this type of stuff. You know, when, when they write the story of this aspect of the aftermath of the Trump presidency, this is one that is completely and totally self-inflicted. And you really would, at some point in time, you'd love to, you know, give Donald Trump some truth serum. And just, I'd love to ask him the question, really, what were you thinking? Mr. President, what were you thinking when you made the decision not to just give this crap back and make this whole issue go away? I don't know that we're ever going to know the answer to that. Um, Trump appears for his initial appearance 
Um, I'm not sure if it's an arraignment or not. It might be an arraignment in Miami tomorrow. There's already talk that there might be large-scale protests. I'm not sure that'll happen, but we'll have more to say on this story tomorrow. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So very, very glad to have you with us. And uh, just kind of repeating stuff there. Uh, we, I really, regardless of how you find us, I, I appreciate that. And of course, we're over the air, which is the way lots of people take this in. And of course, a number of you live stream us. Um, you can check that out. The easiest way to do that is just go to WTMJ.com and download our app, and then you're off to the races. We have people all over the world that listen. If you choose, you can now also watch us. We have cameras all over the studio, and it's really easy. People just say, how, how do they do that? Well, it's real easy. Um, you can just go to WTMJ.com, click the button that says Watch Live, or we have our own WTMJ YouTube channel, so you can go back and people go back and watch this afterwards. So that's just, that's fine too. And then, of course, we've got the podcast. And I was actually looking at the podcast numbers earlier today, and I really appreciate people who decide, well, I want to listen to some or all the show, and I'm not available from noon till three. So you go back and you can download the podcast. You can get them through our website, WTMJ.com, or also anywhere you get your podcasts, uh, Spotify, um, iTunes, etc. And um, I encourage you to stick around. We might have some exciting things coming up relatively soon with regard to, to podcasts to announce. So um, very, very exciting time. And any way you have a chance to listen to us, do it. And we very much appreciate that. All right. You may remember that uh, during the winter, there was this, this huge controversy because you essentially had a tent city that had started up around the the court between like the courthouse and the safety building in Milwaukee County. You've got MacArthur Square and you had all these people that were pitching tents and things like that. And in what I consider to be a well-intentioned but misguided move, you had some of these like groups that were out there who were enabling people to to live on the streets. You know, they'd come around at nine o'clock at night and they'd give people food and, um, you know, and if they needed tents, they'd provide people with tents, which made it easy for people to stay out outside, which to me, I, I understand the intention of this, but it, what you were doing is you were enabling behavior, which is bad behavior and, and long-term d- destructive sort of behavior. And you had this huge controversy because when you have these tent cities that develop, l- let us be honest. What happens a lot of times is because of hygiene things, these areas turn into open open air toilets. That's just the reality. Um, not everybody, but a number of the people who choose to, who end up living in these kind of tent cities, you know, the camping and stuff, um, deal with issues ranging from mental illness to drug addiction to alcohol addiction and things like that. And so they, they pose dangers. So it's not unusual to have stories about assaults and robberies and things like that. So, I mean, the the bottom line of all this is just simply allowing people to squat in public places is not a good thing. And yet in more and more cities, that is precisely what has happened. And I, I was noticing this the other day because it's a route I take every day, but I wasn't driving this, so I was kind of looking around. We went, I think I said last Thursday, we took the train down to Chicago to, to see the musical West Side Story. So our, our friends had picked us up. So I, I'm I'm 
I'm not looking at the road. I'm just kind of looking around. And as you get off 790, if you're coming south on 43, when you get into the city, you're trying to go to the train station. So you get off on 794 and you're heading east and then you're going to get off on Plankington and kind of double back. Along the the hillside, the, the grassy area right next to the freeways, right next to 794, I look over and I don't want to exaggerate this, but I saw there were three or four tents that were pitched on the hillside by by the freeway. And so I said, huh. And I was talking over the weekend to um, a friend of mine who, who works who works at the courthouse, the safety building, is familiar with that area. And I said, you know, whatever happened to all those, those the, the tents that were pitched in MacArthur Square? He said, well, they're, they're gone, and, and they have barricades that are up that really look, look like they're intended to prevent the city intends them to prevent them from coming back. But the person I was talking to said, if you look, again, around kind of some of the freeway overpasses or underpasses or whatever, you're going to see the tents have been pitched there. So what we've done is we've displaced, yes, you've, you've moved, you know, some of the, the campers, the urban campers, you, you've moved them away from the courthouse square, but you've just moved them to other areas in, in the downtown area. And they're, they're still ultimately there. I understand that whenever we talk about an issue like this, there's some people who say, well, we, we shouldn't be too heavy handed with this. Interestingly, story there's in the L.A. Times over the weekend, San Diego considers banning homeless encampments. Now, this is San Diego, California, right? Now, San Diego has always had a problem because of the weather. It's always, they've always had a problem with people like living on the streets or living in the beaches or or things like that because, I mean, year-round it's 75 degrees and and it's sunny. So, you know, that area becomes kind of a magnet for, for people if you want to, again, be, you know, an urban camper. So here, here is the deal. Um, San Diego has gotten to the point where they just, it, it's, it's, it's too much of a problem. Um, they have a number of areas where homeless people have decided to, to camp. Here's what the story says. A proposal to ban homeless encampments from public property in San Diego is going to be debated by elected officials. It's expected to be cheered by some as long overdue and jeered by others, you know who they are, as cruel and ineffective. The proposed ordinance would prohibit people from camping on public property if shelter options are available. It would also ban all camping on certain property, like public parks, even if no Legal shelters are available. And um, they said that there's, they go on to say that it looks like there's been a 32% increase in the number of unsheltered homeless people in the city of San Diego. They talk about all-time high of 2,100 people living on sidewalks and in vehicles just in downtown neighborhoods. And, you know, the argument that this is, you know, it's bringing all these different problems that we're talking about where you've got these, again, you've got hygiene issues. So these areas where you have the camping, they, they turn into open air toilets and all the other things I was talking about with regard to, to crime and things of, of the like. So San Diego, of all places, one of the probably the most liberal state in the country is now saying, hey, en- enough is enough. We cannot have people in these public spaces. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Old National Bank talk and text line. What do you think? Should we allow 
people to pitch tents in public spaces? Should we allow there to be tents up on the hillsides immediately next to the the freeways? Should we allow people to put tents up or to just sleep in the public parks, understanding that, well, I mean, homelessness is, in fact, an issue, but at the same time, when you have these encampments, whether it's winter or summer, it's always going to create huge problems. 855-616-1620. San Diego, of all places, is thinking about banning the tent cities, the homeless encampments. I think we got to do that here as well, and we've got to vigorously enforce it. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Look, look, here's the bottom line. I understand homelessness is an issue, and I understand there needs to be different options. But allowing people to just pitch tents or flop down with sleeping bags willy-nilly anywhere they want, freeway overpasses, freeway underpasses, um, along the hillsides next to freeways, is simply not an acceptable alternative. And people shouldn't be allowed to enable this to, to happen. Like, here, here, have a tent so you can sleep outside in the park. And, and we shouldn't allow it to happen because the truth is you're not doing anybody any favors when, you know, that ends up occurring because it leads to nothing but problems. You've got to get people off the street. Jeff, this is a problem. My daughter goes to school down in Waco, Texas. They have a huge homeless problem. You have these beautiful apartments, and down in the district, you have people, you know, sleeping on the lawns everywhere. Um, they don't really cause a problem except asking for money, but they need to find a place for these people. Um, Yes, I mean, I think that's it. Jeff, you can bet if the DNC was happening next summer, they'd find a way to relocate, place these street people. Well, that's... That is sort of what happened. That was the motivation. You had a number of people who were had started their own kind of tent city under the freeway down there. And when it looked like before COVID, when the DNC was going to come here, they, Tom Barrett was cleaning them out. I mean, it was like, okay, well, you know, we cannot have all these people living under the freeway when we've got the Democratic National Convention here. Um yeah, I think there's an element. Jeff, do you remember when the campers were moved from the Marquette Interchange for the Democratic Convention? They moved over to um, uh, the Highland Underpass, and now they're moving back to the Marquette Interchange. Well, yeah, you're you're seeing all this type of stuff that, that's happening. And look, I understand this is a complicated issue, but one of the things you got to start with is saying – as long as there is shelter space that is available, you can't have the option of staying outside. Because let's face it, there, there are people who just make the decision that they don't want to go into the shelters because the shelters have rules. You know, you're not going to be able to drink if you're in the shelters. You're not going to be allowed to be, you know, um, be aggressive and get into fights. You're going to get tossed out. You're not going to be allowed to have drug use. So there's some people who just don't want to do that. I, I think. You know, this is a situation where you have to just say, but there's zero tolerance. We're not going to allow people to pitch tents on the hillside next to I-794 and squat there. Lisa in Milwaukee. Lisa, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Uh, I'm calling. I actually used to place people in shelters in Milwaukee, and I remember when they, we removed the tent city. I mean, they do that periodically. Um, the only issue is that people that are sex offenders or have a criminal violence history are not allowed in shelters. So we would have to have an alternative place for them to stay where they would not be a risk 
mm-hmm. to other people. That's also the reason a lot of people don't want to stay in shelter. So I'm in favor of, uh, you know, kind of what they did in New York City. There's a lot of severely mentally ill people that cannot be in a shelter and they refuse to go inside. Right. And there, if there is, if we take care of housing options for severely mentally ill people and the people I mentioned, then yes. But otherwise, I mean, otherwise they're just going to be sent somewhere else to be create a problem somewhere else. It, it is a mess. But at the same time, you know, in, in this, what you're saying kind of underscores what that mess is, Lisa, because let us assume that in, in, a, in an encampment, a tent city, 30 tents, you know, whatever, if you've got, I don't know, 30 or 40 percent of the people who are in that category you just described, it, it poses just a huge safety risk to everybody else that's there. I mean, you just because you're going to have all, all those problems for the same reason the shelters don't want people in. You know, you, you don't want to pitch your tent next to the to the to the sex offender because nothing good is going to happen with that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So then if we had housing for those people, I'm all for that, but we don't. So, Well, I think the, I mean, thanks. I mean, that, that of course, raises this larger issue that I carry on about all the time as well, that I just, I don't think we do. I don't think we do people who are mentally ill a favor by simply saying we're not going to intervene Unless and until we can prove that you either are either a danger to yourself or a danger to others. And, and why is that? Because generally speaking, by then it's too late. I mean, you, you know, everybody says, OK, we, we know this person has has this problem. But here we're, we're, the system's not going to be allowed to intervene. We're not going to be allowed to grab the person up and, you know, forcibly detain them and make them take their meds and things like that. Um, unless, in fact, they they do attack somebody or hurt themselves or whatever. And like I say, by then it's it's too late. So, I mean, I think there are various components of this, but just from the perspective of, of like a downtown area, you can't have people just, you know, giving people tents and saying, okay, hang out here. And if it does turn out that, you know, a good percentage of those people um, are choosing to be homeless by choice in the fact that, again, they're, again, the, the drug and alcohol problems or mental illness or whatever, that's, you can't have that in in a city. You're not doing anybody any favors with this. So the way the San Diego ordinance would work is as long as there are alternatives available, you're not allowed to to have the encampment. So that puts burden on that puts a burden on the city to say, okay, we're we're going to have shelter space or we're going to have other facilities that are there where we can take people. But I mean, I do appreciate what Lisa's saying. Until long term, we look at how are we going to handle the problem of mental illness and the people who decide that they, because of that mental illness, because of the various addictions, that they're just going, they just don't want help. Well, and, until we figure out that larger question. You're always going to have an issue of, of homelessness, but you've got to, you just cannot say, here, here's a tent, live by the side of the freeway. Nothing good can happen from that. And it's interesting that, like I say, a liberal city like San Diego is starting to recognize that. Portland has the same problem. In Wisconsin and Milwaukee, it's not as severe because we don't have that great weather year round. But again, for anybody who for anybody who thinks it's a good idea to have anybody living in a tent in January in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I'm, I'm sorry, that is not a humane approach to a complicated problem.
So you think you want to be a police officer. This is a story over the weekend from Madison. Two runaway girls. Okay, this, this is what, what happened. The, the incident starts late last week. A guy calls the Madison police to report that his daughter is missing. My daughter, who I think she was either 12 or 13. There's a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old. So 12-year-old or a 13-year-old girl has run away. Father calls to report it. Police investigate. The police find the girl with another runaway, and they were brought back to the, the home. Okay, so you would think that this all ends well, right? This is good. We found the two kids, one's 12, one's 13. But here's the deal. Apparently, the girls, the girls, according to the reports, when the police found them, they threatened and resisted officers. The guy's daughter, and I don't know if it's the 12 or 13-year-old, tried to bite one of the police officers, both of the girls, these runaways, spit on the officers, and they were ultimately taken to the Dane County Jail. The 13-year-old has been tentatively charged with resisting and discharging bodily fluids at law enforcement. The 12-year-old was uh, tentatively charged with attempted battery to law enforcement and attempted discharge of bodily fluids. For those of you, I mean, in, in today's day and age, spitting on someone else is a big deal. Um, and spitting on police officers is an even bigger deal. But here, you know, I mean, who wants to be a cop? You get this report. We got these two runaway kids. Okay, you find the kids. All right, we got to take you. We're going to take you back home. And, you know, what? what is their response? They attack the police, try to bite them, spit on them, end up getting themselves arrested. It's almost like, you know, why bother? And, you know, from the police perspective, it's probably, hey, we're trying to help out. We're trying to do our job. And this is what we get. I mean, it's just, I seriously wonder where you're going to find police officers moving forward. Is this a story of entitlement or is there something more going on here? Now, let me back into this. It, it, it used to be that like flying on planes was kind of cool. It used to be people, I'm going back a long time, it used to be people would like kind of dress up, you know, to, to fly on planes. It was, it was a big deal. And back when we had Midwest Express, I used to fly that all the time between Milwaukee and Washington and back. And, and they'd serve you, they'd, they'd serve you good meals and they'd, they'd offer you like champagne and stuff like that. And it was like there only, there were two wide seats and they were leather. It was really cool. Well, th- those days are gone. I mean, the reality is with the economics of air travel nowadays, you, you want to, at least if you're like me, you want to get to the airport, you want to be able to get onto your plane with as little hassle as possible. You want to have your plane take off, hopefully on time, land when it's supposed to land, and then, you know, your luggage accompanies you. I mean, that, that's it, it's kind of simple. But, you know, it's not going to be a great experience no matter how you do it. And one of the things that I, I've always said is that it's, you know, being a jerk doesn't make anything any easier. I mean, I always kind of feel bad for the TSA people. So I I try to, no matter what kind of day I'm having, I always try to be the friendly Jeff, the the nice accompanying Jeff, because the truth is being a TSA agent, for example, is is a terrible job. It it really is. You know, you've got people who are in in general, they're in a hurry and they don't like the fact that they got to take off their belt and take off their shoes and have people going through their stuff. And, and at the same time, and I also understand that, you know, 99.9999999% of the time, the stuff they're going to be looking at is, is benign. But if you ever miss that one time, that point zero 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 one occasion where somebody's got ill intention and contraband, if you ever miss that and something bad happens, well, okay, you're, you're, 
you, you're, you're ruined for life. That, that's just the reality. So it's, it's kind of a thankless job. And I sort of feel the same way about the people who, you know, work at, with the, work at the airlines, the gate agents and the people checking bags and, th- and things like that. And so whenever I run into that agent who I think kind of cops an attitude, I had somebody sort of copped an attitude with me the last time we were coming back from Florida with, with our dog, but, but it was okay. It was like, all right, let's, Let's let's get past this, and then you know you kind of move on because I just want to get this past. Which brings me to the story of Marlon Wayans. Charlie, you know who Marlon Wayans is? You don't. He, he's a comedian. He's he's a black comedian. He's part of the the Wayans family. He was on um, he was on um, in Living Color that TV show, and he was like one of the voices in the movie Air and things like that. So he's 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 a he's a stand up comedian who's TV and things like that. So here's the story. He is flying from Denver. He's supposed to fly on United Airlines. He's flying from Denver on Friday to Kansas City. He's going to do a couple shows in Kansas City on United Airlines. So he gets to the, the gate, and he's got baggage, you know, with him. Doesn't, doesn't check the baggage. The gate agent says to him, you, you have more we – have a, we have a space shortage on the plane – and you're not allowed to take all these bags onto onto the plane. You're going to have to check them or consolidate them. He says, "What do you mean? I got to check them?" And he's flying first class, but that that's apparently they're they're running out of space on this plane. And I don't know if you've ever had that happen. I, I certainly have, where you know they're running out of overheads, bin space, or whatever, and they'll say, "Okay, we don't have any more room." And they 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 do what's called gate check. They they take your bag, they give you you know they give you the claim check, and then you you get it when when you get off the plane. So they, they tell him, you, you've got too many bags to, to check. And they say, well, I'm, so I'm flying first class. He said, it doesn't make any difference. He said, you've got too many bags to check. You're going to have to consolidate them. Okay. So what he does is he takes stuff out of one bag and puts it into this other bag. The problem is when he's doing that, the, the bag that he's consolidated all his stuff into it is now too big. It won't fit, right? So they say, look, I'm sorry that this bag isn't going to fit you're going to have to check this. And he then cops an attitude. What do you mean? I've got to check this, et cetera, et cetera. At which point in time, he then leaves all his stuff. He starts yelling at the gate agent. He leaves all his stuff and kind of makes a bum rush down the jetway to get, he grabs his ticket, leaves all his stuff behind him. At, at which point in time, you know, they call ahead and they say, this guy just left all his stuff here. You know, he's just running for the plane. At which point in time, they they stop him from, you know, getting on the plane. They stop him from boarding with the luggage that he's just kind of abandoned at the at the gate. And they, they say, no, you, you, you can't you can't get on. And so he's like, I think what's happening is right. There's the there's the um, you, you've got the agent at the gate and then they've got, you know, the, the person who's like checking the tickets on the jet bridge and stuff. So he just decides he's going to just abandon his stuff and he's going to blast through to get on. And, and they, they stop him. They say, no, you wait a second. You, you can't just abandon your stuff. And he decides he's going to do it anyways. So what United Airlines says is a customer who had been told he would have to gate check his bag, instead of gate checking his bag, pushed past a United employee at the jet bridge and attempted to board the aircraft. All right. Um, United says this customer is not going to be flying on United to his destination. Denver police officers were called to the gate. Um, after officers spoke with all parties involved, they gave Wayans a, certi- a citation for disturbing the police 
and then released him. All right, at this point in time, Wayans kind of goes nuts, goes on social media, puts out the thing saying, the agent was clearly picking on me. He asked me to consolidate my bags. I complied. Then said, now I have to check the bag because since I've consolidated into one bag, it was too big. Apparently, there's no dispute that it was, in fact, too big at that time. He then goes on to talk about how he was treated disrespectfully. He says that he believes that he was singled out because of his his race. He accuses United of racism and classism after pulling him from the flight over the uh, baggage dispute. Um, and he now says, look, I want an apology. I want, uh, I think that they should reimburse me because he ended up missing his shows in Kansas City because they wouldn't let him get on the plane and he had to rebook and he flew on uh, American. He then um, says, he, he then kind of plays the race card. He says, well, there was a white person who had multiple bags and he takes a picture. It turns out that um, the, the person he took the picture of was a United employee, like a crew member, not necessarily on that flight, but was flying on this flight to pick up another plane, and they have different rules for crew members and the baggage that they can have. So anyhow, um, you know, United says, look, the gate, there was no more room on this aircraft. We told him, you know, that he'd had to, we were going to gate check the bag, and the guy refused and then tried to get on the plane by abandoning all his luggage. We weren't going to let him do that. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. All right. Uh, Wayans describes this as an example of racism and classism. Not sure what he means by classism. United says the bag was too big, and we just told him he had to gate check it. Who's right? Who's wrong? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. So Marlon Wayans, who um, he was, he really claimed to came to claim to fame in the early 1990s when he and his brothers were on this sketch comedy show called In Living Color. You know, he's gone on to do a number of movies and TV shows, and he's he's a stand-up comedian. So if you're just tuning in, Friday he's flying from Denver to Kansas City on United. Right, he's got comedy shows that night in Kansas City. He gets to the gate. He's got multiple carry-on bags. They tell him, you, you can't take the multiple bags on. There's not enough room on the plane. You're not entitled to take all these bags on. So they say you have to consolidate them. Okay, so he consolidates all the stuff into one bag. The problem is he's got so much stuff, the bag is too big. Okay, so they say, sorry, what, you, you got to gate check it. Here, we'll, we'll, we'll take it for you. you know, we'll, we'll, give you, we'll give you the receipt. You just pick it up when you get to Kansas City. Okay, instead of just simply saying, okay, and doing that, he cops an attitude, abandons his stuff at the at the gate, and kind of bum rushes down the jet bridge to get on the plane. At which point in time, United Airlines says, "Wait a second, you know, you 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 can't do this," and they end up stopping him. They call the Denver, they call the police at the airport, and the police end up citing him for disorderly conduct for creating the scene, which all of which would have been avoided if what would he have had to do? Say thanks. This is a little bit annoying, but okay, give me my claim check, and I'll, I'll pick up my stuff in Kansas City. But instead, he, he kind of cops this attitude. So he, he's not allowed—he misses his flight. He ends up rebooking on um, American Airlines. But 
what happens then is he, he takes to social media and, and he's the he's the victim. He accuses United of racism and classism by telling him that the bag he had when he consolidated it was too big so he'd have to gate check it. Man, we've come a long way since Dr. Martin Luther King. If this is the example of racism, that when you're flying first class, they, they tell you you have to gate check your bag. I mean, that that that's the example of racism. He says, well, there was somebody else on there. Here's a picture that, that had multiple bags. Well, it turns out that's a crew member who's like deadheading or, or whatever. And, you know, the, she's a member of, the, of a flight crew. That's a, a different sort of rule. So now, you know, he's, I'm never flying, you know, united again. Our number is 855-616-1620. I just, this is the type of stuff that literally makes me crazy. All you have to do is just say, okay, I've got too much stuff. I get it. This is going to be a little bit inconvenient because I'm going to have to wait a couple minutes once I get into Kansas City. But here, take the stuff, give me the gate check, and I will be done. Jeff, is there a male version of a Karen? (laughs) Flying today is frustrating, but you're spot on saying gate agents and ticket agents have an absolutely thankless job, especially dealing with elitists such as Marlon Wayans. Yeah, this is, again, I love, in this case, the, the playing the race card thing. This is the example of racism that, you know, you have to gate check your bag before you get onto the first class section, really. Um, Jeff, in Kansas City, baggage claim is right by each of the gates, so it promptly goes from the plane right to the conveyor. It's much quicker than in in most airports. Jeff, according to longstanding FAA regulations, the flight crew is always right, and a frequent flyer like him should understand the rules and comply. Um, I think he needs to take personal responsibility for his predicament. Had he simply complied, he'd have made it to Kansas City as planned for his shows. So not getting there on time is his fault and solely is his fault. Jeff, class discrimination. He's the one thinking he should have special treatment because he was traveling first class. Besides being rude, he appears to be too lazy to check his additional bags and then cries about his treatment. Give me a break. Sounds to me like he had ample opportunity to fix the problem and make his flight. Well, well, right. And look, do I understand a degree of frustration? Oh, what do you mean? I, I'm flying first class. I, I'm not allowed to take this extra bag on. No, sir. I'm sorry. We're, we don't have room. This is the problem. OK, I'll, I'll, I'll consolidate it. OK, now the consolidated bag is too big. All right. You know, they, they tried. So what do you do? Sometimes... What is the phrase that we use so often? Sometimes stuff happens. It just, and that's not necessarily the word we use, but for the radio show, stuff happens. That, that's it. And you just kind of roll with it. Oh, okay, I, the, the bag is overweight. I got to pay extra money. Or the bag is too big to fit in the overhead carry-on bin now that I put all my stuff in there. Okay, fine. Here, take it. I'll pick it up in Kansas City. You're sure that it's going to be in Kansas City, right? Yes, it will. Jeff, are you serious about this story? He broke the law, got caught. I don't understand. He tried to use the privilege card, and it blew up in his face. Jeff, this guy is being a jerk and deserves what he gets. I love the effort to play the races, race card. Yeah, racism and classism. No, just give him. I, I, I'm, I'm a victim of a racist United Airlines because they wanted me to gate check my bag. Give me a blanking break. This is Jeff Wagner.